All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we go to the word this morning, let's bow our heads together and ask the Lord's guidance on our study. Our Father, you've given your word to us that we might come to understand who you are and who we are and how to have a relationship with you for eternity, have eternal life that we may live forever, and that is through faith alone and Christ alone. You've demonstrated to us your your love, and we are expected to emulate that as your image bearers. Fathers, we continue our study in this passage in Matthew where Jesus summarizes the whole of the law. There is much for us to reflect upon and to think about in terms of our own life and in terms of a lot of issues that surround us in our world today. As Christians, we need to think uh, profoundly and deeply and, uh, and reflect upon these things because God the Holy Spirit is teaching us to change the way we think and to change the way we live. And we must be reminded constantly that the only solution to personal problems, family problems, the only solution to social problems, national, cultural problems, is your word. And that is your word alone that is going to supply any real stability and any genuine solution. And the ultimately what is that depends on for us is our submission to your word and our application and implementation of what your word says. And we pray that we would be responsive to your word this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew. We are in Matthew chapter 22, looking at verses 34 to 40. Matthew 22, 34 to 40. And in this section, what I have done... Two weeks ago is to look at the breakdown of the basic uh, basic exegetical components of, of the Scripture. When we study how to read the Bible or how to study the Bible, there's three elements, three components to Bible study methods. One is observation, the second is interpretation, the third is application. Many of you have heard me teach on this many times. Observation is basically learning what the text says. That's a lot of what goes on in a Bible class in our study of the Word is, first of all, we have to understand what the text says because sometimes it's not as uh, readily apparent or a lot of the nuances of the text are not that clear. As Howard Hendricks pointed out when I had him as a professor many years ago at Dallas Seminary, the problem with most people is they jump to application They spend about 2% of their time on observation and about 1% of their time on interpretation, and then they jump into application. And if we spend the right amount of time in observation, which is roughly 80%, then the interpretation becomes pretty obvious. 
But if we don't do our work in observation, in other words, when it comes to a, a Bible study, when it comes to a sermon, when if we don't spend enough time really analyzing what the text says, then we're often going to misinterpret it, and then we, we're really out of bounds when it comes to application. And so we that's one reason I spend as much time as I do going through the backgrounds of the text. But we have to look at application, and sometimes there are passages that are just uh, pregnant with significance, and this is one of those. And so I'm slowing down a little bit because I want to unpack some of the significance of these passages uh, in light of the exegesis that we have done. So today what I want to do is take take a little more time to think this through and maybe set up a framework, a structure for application as we think about this. As we know from looking at this passage the last couple of weeks, Jesus is asked by a an expert in the law, a scribe, a member of the Pharisaical party, what the greatest of the commandments are. And Jesus responds with the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now that's the topic here. And then he goes on from there. The second is like the first. And since the first is about love, the second is about love. That's how they connect. And what we'll see this week and more next week is that these are two interdependent commands as Jesus sets them off. You can't have, you can't do the second if you don't understand the first. And the first is the foundation for the second. And those who are attempting to do the second without the first are just going to create a massive problem. And that's how our, where our world is today. So I wrote down some things uh, just to sort of summarize these thoughts in, by way of introduction. First of all, love is essential biblically to any human relationship, whether it's a relationship to God or a relationship with other human beings. Love is foundational because God created us in his image and in his likeness. And since God is love, as we saw last time in 1 John uh, chapter 4, twice John states clearly God is love. Since God is love, if we're created in his image and likeness, then we are to reflect that love. But we have to understand what love is, and if there's one concept that is grossly misunderstood by fallen human beings, it's the concept of love. And so we we have to understand. That's where we started last time. So love is essential to any human relation, first the relationship with God, then the relationship with others. Second, we have to understand that love is not autonomous or independent. It's not just some abstract concept. As Scripture teaches, love begins with God, and we as image bearers have to reflect that. So if you want to be a better lover, you have to be a better theologian. If you have to want to be a better lover, you have to understand what the Word of God teaches about love. You can't go to Webster's Dictionary. I learned that years ago. You go look up the word love in a Webster's Dictionary to find out what it means, and they are way off base. They start off, love is an emotion. Well, that's not what the Scripture teaches. So at the very get-go, we see this contrast between what the Bible teaches and what man thinks that is a, the root of numerous problems. Third point is that love toward God, I mean love in God, God's love, is not something that occurs in a vacuum. This is a problem we often see, especially with liberal humanistic theology, that which came out of the perversion known as 19th century Protestant liberalism. It's an emphasis on the love of God without reference to any of his other attributes. The love of God is we break out ten attributes when we study the essence of God, 
And what we see there are, are these different attributes of God that we study independently, but in the person of God, they're all interdependent and interconnected. And so you can't separate the love out as if it acts uh, independently. Now, an impl- one of the implications we need to think through on that as we go through the next couple of weeks is that as we hear in our society, we hear a lot of buzzwords on many different things, but one, a couple of the buzzwords we're hearing a lot over the last few years are terms like social justice or its opposite, social injustice, uh, social inequality. People, politicians, athletes, movements and organizations are using these words a lot. If you're reading the papers, if you're paying attention to the controversy surrounding athletes who whether they'll stand up or not stand up for the national anthem, uh, what they are uh, uh, doing is protesting social inequality. Now, whenever you see the word social, you better start thinking biblically and start thinking with the concept of love because that's going to be inherent if we're going to properly analyze anything related to society. And we have to start at a biblical basis and not um, not at a human viewpoint basis. Terms like this often sound good to the uneducated masses, but the problem is they're loaded with worldview presuppositions that are contrary to the Word of God. They have a populist appeal, especially to minorities or those that view themselves as socially oppressed or economically advantaged. And in some cases, they may have a case. In other cases, they may not have a case. But at the core of these terms, we have to understand and think through these concepts very carefully. What does it mean to have love for other human beings? If that is essential in this command, and that's what we see in the uh, second command that, that Jesus emphasizes coming out of Leviticus 19, we're to love our neighbor as ourself. But see, in 19th century liberal thought, that was divorced from the first command, and so everything becomes oriented towards uh, social, some sort of social justice and social uh, reparative therapy, if you look at it from a psychological worldview, uh, things of that nature, and it's divorced from what it cannot be divorced from if it's going to be effective, and that is love for God, because the two are are connected. Love for God comes first, and love uh, love for one another comes second, but it can't be divorced from righteousness and justice. So when we use terms, or you hear people talk about, and politicians especially talk about, terms like social justice, and we have to hold to righteousness. Righteousness and justice all relate to a standard. What is the standard? Where are we going to get this standard? And when we talk about, well, that's not just or that's not fair, what's the standard that we are appealing to? Where do we get that standard? And if we're not going to the Word of God and the character of God to determine that standard then we're just offloading in space, just chasing our own tail. So we have to understand how what righteousness and justice mean, and we have to understand how God's love relates to his justice and his righteousness because they are 
equally part of God's eternal character. And what happens coming out of 19th century religious liberalism again, which was heavily influenced by the late 19th century, early 20th century, with false views of the kingdom of God, that man could somehow bring about the kingdom of God. That became known as, uh, that was known as post-millennialism. And it, and it brought in the, and it also borrowed heavily from Marxism, which is a Christian heresy. Now a lot of people say, well, how's Marxism a Christian heresy? Because Marxism is built on a philosophy of history, and it borrowed and stole the idea of linear history from Christianity. So it's a perversion uh, of Christianity, and a lot of things flow out of, out, out of that. So as we look at those first three points I just summarized by way of introduction, we have to really think through this. And the starting point for all of us, for Christians, has to be God. It has to be the Word of God. That's why I said if you want to be a better lover, you have to be a better theologian. And I don't mean that in an abstract sense. I mean that you need to understand God because that's the starting point. And that's where I ended uh, last time talking about the love of God has to be understood as it is demonstrated at the cross. Now, fourth thing I want to bring out in terms of this introduction so that we can think about this as I develop these points over the coming weeks is that we need to understand, we need to think in terms of solving some very core social problems in our culture. These aren't going to go away. They get worse and worse every year. Uh, but in order to do that, we have to understand some basics about solving problems and basic solutions. Now, part of what I'm covering today, to put the title slide up here, is that we're going to focus on something that the Bible emphasizes again and again, is that we can measure how we love God. And measure, being able to measure how you love God is going to impact how you love others. But you have to, we have to focus on that loving for God first. So that's what we're looking at today in terms of our, what is the biblical metric for loving God? Because that's going to impact our biblical metric for loving one another. Now we have to recognize that the Bible says that there's, presents these two opposing ways of evaluating everything. There's man's way, which I often describe as the human viewpoint solution. By human viewpoint, I don't mean man's finite way of looking at things. I mean a way that is opposed to the way God looks at things. It is a summary of human attempts to solve man's basic problems without reference to God or his revelation. The Bible calls it the world's way. This is the way of the world. It's another. The Greek word is cosmos. It's an orderly system, but it's not just one. It's made up of a lot of, in many cases, mutually contradictory approaches, uh, whether they are religious or whether they are philosophical, whether it's Eastern religion, whether it's works-oriented Western religion, whether it's uh, uh, some sort of idealistic philosophy such as Platonism or Cartesianism, or whether it is some sort of empirically-based philosophy such as Aristotelianism or the empiricism of Barclay and, and uh, Locke and Hume. Uh, they're just, they're all, they all have a, a creation-based starting point, a finite reference point, not, not God. And this is always uh, opposed in Scripture to God's way. There's a way, the proverb says there's a way that seems right to man, but the end thereof is death. And so when we're operating on human viewpoint, it feels good. It seems to be the right solution. 
We can't understand why it doesn't work, but the end game is destruction. And we always have to understand that, that the wrong solution, no matter how how good it makes us feel, no matter how right it appears, it always ends in self-destruction and cultural destruction. And we can't avoid that. God's way is the divine viewpoint solution, and it's the biblical way. Now, the two ultimate characteristics, as I've pointed out many times, of the world's way is arrogance, starting with arrogance. Man elevates himself to be the ultimate reference point, and man thinks that he can come up with a solution on the basis of his, his intellect alone and his ability to interpret the details of life. And we see this from politicians and people and editorialists and all the time, and they ignore the, 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 the divine solution. And we see this coming from any number of pastors who haven't done their homework in thinking about what these ultimate solutions have to be. The second characteristics, uh, second characteristics of, uh, second characteristic of, uh, the of human viewpoint is it always leads to an antagonism toward God. Because man is suppressing truth and unrighteousness, it leads to a hostility towards God, and man in his fallen state, or when he's walking according to the sin nature, is always hostile to God. And so when Christians come along and offer a Bible-based solution, what's the reaction going to be in a pagan culture? It's going to be anger, resentment, hostility. Uh, somehow we've got to stuff the Christians along with their God back into a, a, a hole somewhere and cover it up and put everything we can on top of it so they can't get out and, and make any more noise. The biblical way is always going to be grounded on humility. And humility is going to be manifested in love. And so these are the the polar opposites. It's one way or the other way in Scripture. And when you are thinking through a lot of things, and we have not so good choices this year politically in a lot of ways, uh, but we have to think in terms of what the Scripture teaches about what ultimate real solutions are. And as we are confronted day in, day out with stories in the news and people who are upset, it just gets worse and worse. Our whole culture is fragmenting and falling apart and has been for 20 years. It's just gotten to the point now where almost nobody can deny it unless they're just living living in a bubble somewhere. So this gives us a, a bit of a, a framework for understanding uh, what is going uh, what is going on here. Now, as we look at this, Scripture does give us a metric. That metric is going to be found in Galatians chapter 5. So this is a fifth point. Galatians, in Galatians, Paul gives us an insight into measuring or evaluating or identifying the source of various solutions. It's interesting that this section begins with Paul quoting Galatians 5, uh, quoting in Galatians 5.14, Leviticus 19.18, the passage, the, the very verse Jesus quotes in Matthew chapter uh, 22, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. That's his starting point. Now, in the, So in this section, there's a section breaking Galatians, a section from Galatians 5.14 on is going to help un, us understand as believers how we can actually 
fulfill this command, how we can implement this in our lives. So the command is given there in Galatians 5.14. Galatians 5.16, Paul begins with the command to walk by the Spirit. He says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So he's juxtaposing uh, walking by God the Holy Spirit on the one hand, or you're fulfilling the lust of the flesh in the other. Those are the only two options. So once again, the Bible presents this black and white opposition. You're either one or the other. You're either in divine viewpoint uh, or you're in human viewpoint. You're either uh, walking by the Spirit, you're walking by the flesh. You're either um, you're either operating consistently with Satan's worldview or you're operating on a, on a biblical worldview. There's no other options. It's one or the other. So how do you know? If you look at the next verses in verses 17 down through 20, uh, 17 and 18 rather in Galatians 5, Paul goes on to say that, that there's this war that goes on that the, that the uh, flesh lusts against the, the, the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. There's this, this conflict that always goes on. It's one or the other. And then he gives us a metric, but I'm going to skip to the positive metric first. In Galatians 5:22 and 23, he says, "When you're walking by the Spirit, the Spirit's going to produce character qualities. These character qualities reflect the character of Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is love." Now, what? How did we start this section? We start in Galatians 5:14, saying that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. So that's his focus point. Focal point in Galatians 5 is how to develop love, and it doesn't come by just saying, I'm going to love people and generating it up, reaching deep inside you and say, I'm just going to be different. I'm going to love people. And I'm going to get all emotional about them and sentimental about everybody and be concerned about that. It's the product of God, the Holy Spirit. And notice how uh, what this fruit looks like. And notice it's, it's not fruits. Not looking at these in terms of separate individual components, but as intersecting components that are, make up the fruit or the product of the character that's manifest in a believer. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. The point to look at here is when we are looking at solutions that are being proposed, if it's a divine viewpoint solution based on Scripture, which is what we as Christians are to be focusing on, the end game is not going to be divisiveness. It's going to produce harmony. Now, when we look at these different worldview attempts that are proposed by by uh, politicians, many of which have become more more uh, in the forefront over the last uh, 30 years, primarily through progressivism, which is just another term for Marxism, it's led to more and more division. We have seen this country fragment more and more over uh, more and more over the last 30 years, and it's not going to improve. That's because we're not applying anything close to a biblical solution. A biblical solution doesn't manifest in that way. In fact, what we see when we're uh, as in individuals or a culture operating on sin nature control, we have the following results. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, which is the use of drugs. It's not, it was originally the use of, of uh, hallucinogens in, in occultism. That's why it's translated sorcery. The Greek word there is pharmakeia. And then notice in verse 20, it says, Hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions. If you just watch the news, this characterizes our culture. We're in total meltdown. 
That's because we're operating on human viewpoint solutions that will never, ever work. Because no matter how moral they may be, no matter how good they may feel, no matter how uh, how well you can argue for them, the end result is that it fragments the culture and leads to all kinds of divisions and hostility and anger and resentment. Read social media sometime. Is that manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, or does that manifest the works of the flesh? That's our, this is our metric right here. This is how we evaluate where things go and, and whether they're based on a, a, a divine viewpoint solution or a human viewpoint solution. So that's a, a framework that I want us to think through as we talk about what Jesus is saying in Matthew 22 in relation to these two great commandments. Now, Matthew 22, just to remind you, these is the, the historical setting. It's the last week before Jesus goes to the cross. This is probably uh, two days before he uh, has the uh, Last Supper with his disciples. And he's confronted with the Pharisees, as he has been, and they ask three questions. They're set-up questions, and they're an attempt to to trick him into somehow um, uh, criminalizing himself in the eyes of either the, the, the Jewish religious leaders or in the eyes of the Roman authorities. The first question had to do with whether it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. The second, they set up a bogus uh, hypothetical from the Pharisees who didn't even believe in resurrection, dealing with the uh, death of uh, several husbands of a woman who marries in in terms of uh, levered marriage. One husband dies, and she marries his brother, and then the next brother, and the next brother. And then they ask the trick question, well, who's? Wife, is she going to be in the resurrection? Well, the whole thing's bogus. And uh, Jesus is very sophisticated in the way he answers these things. And then we come to the third question uh, in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. That's the key word. All through this, that's what they're doing. They're testing. They're, they're, they're trying to trap him. It's a, it's a setup situation. So just in terms of summary, the setting is described in verse uh, uh, verse uh, 30, uh, 35. Then when one of them, a lawyer, uh, that's the it's not a lawyer like you think of a lawyer. It's a it's a an expert in Torah, uh, expert in the Old Testament, and uh, he's a, called a scribe in the parallel in Mark. He asks a question, testing him, and says, and then here's the trap, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law. A lot of discussion about just how this is handled, but he's he's really setting this up to see this probably, although we don't have specifics on it, probably relates to a controversy within the Pharisees at the time, and uh, so he's seeking to trying to get Jesus to um, uh, criminalize himself, or at least in the eyes of the religious leaders, somehow commit blasphemy. And, and, and doing this. He's asking which is the great commandment in the law, and it is an uh, interesting Greek phrase because the way he uses the word great, great it's, it's an idiomatic use that is used as a superlative 
what's greater than all uh, all of the others? And so Jesus gives a two-part answer. Part one is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. We have a fuller answer in the Mark parallel, as we've seen. But the idea here is that every he's, this isn't a kind of passage where you're going to break down and say, well, this is the heart, this is the soul, this is the mind. Uh, that That would miss the point. The point is every aspect of your created being that is in the image and likeness of God is to be fully and totally engaged with loving God all the time. That's his point. So this, this is the first part. The second part is like it in that it also focuses on love, but it shows it's dependent on it. And that is your love your neighbor as yourself, which is a quote from the second part of Leviticus 19:18b. Now, I thought about just putting the second half of the slide up there, but it's important to look at the first half. It says, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. See, there's a, a the Bible always teaches in terms of opposites. It juxtaposes truth with error. It, it, it helps you understand white by by comparing it to that which is off-white. So you can see the clarity of what the Scripture says. And so loving your neighbor as yourself completely eschews any form of vengeance or any kind of, of uh, anger or resentment or bearing a grudge towards anyone else. When we get involved in some of the intense political discourse we're seeing today, that's really difficult to do, isn't it? That's why it's a work of the Spirit, because you and I just can't generate it from our own being. So Jesus draws a conclusion. He says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And what he means by that is that everything in the Scripture is built on these two presuppositions. Everything in the Scripture, all application is built on these two uh, foundations. In Matthew 7:12, which also is a passage we'll look at in reference to the uh, second commandment, and Matthew 7 he talks about uh, also talks about loving one another. He concludes in that section and says, therefore, and this is a summary. We many of you may have learned this when you were a kid, if you were old enough to be in school when they mentioned the Bible. Uh, this was called the golden rule. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Notice it's the same summary. This is, and by law and prophets, he's referring to two divisions of the Old Testament. The first five books of the Old Testament, the, what we call the Pentateuch, which is uh, referred technically as the Torah, although that word Torah is used of all the Old Testament. It simply means instruction, although it has a more technical meaning of law. And then the prophets, those who wrote the former prophets, the latter prophets. We refer to those as the historical books and then the, the major prophets. But it's, it's a summary term for, for the Scripture as they had it in terms of what we call the, the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. And then Mark records the response. This isn't in Matthew. And the response is that the scribe who is trying to entrap him uh, is convinced by what he says and says, Well said, teacher, you've spoken the truth that there's one God and there's no other but he, and to love him with all the heart, all the understanding, all the soul, all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
Now, when Jesus saw that he, that is this scribe, this lawyer, answered wisely, he said, you're not far from the kingdom of God. You're getting close to understanding the truth is what Jesus is saying. But then it says, after that, no one dared to, to, to question him anymore. So I'm going to skip that side. It goes back to Deuteronomy 6, 4, which is the, in the law. It's called the Shema in, in, um, in Judaism. It is always cited. It is viewed as the great commandment. And in Mark, Mark quotes from the, Mark has Jesus quoting from the whole passage, which is what he would have done because he's laying the groundwork in that opening command. Shema Israel. Uh, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad, the Lord our, is our God, the Lord alone is how it should be translated. I've covered that the last few weeks. And so this emphasizes the starting point for personal love for anyone. If we're going to love other people, it has to start with understanding this. That is in both Old Testament and New Testament. So last time I started looking at how we learn to love God. And pointing out that in the essence of God, uh, part of his essential attribute is that he is love. We also have passages in Scripture that talk about the fact that God is righteous and God is just. But the but we have no, a number of passages, such as in uh, 1 John chapter 4, that talk about God is love. Our conclusion from that that we need to be reminded of before we build on it, is that therefore we must understand divine love if we're going to understand love in any sense whatsoever. If you're married and you tell your spouse you love them, is that a love that is predicated on an understanding of God's love or is that just a love that's predicated on the world and how the world looks at things? That's a very important question to ask. That's something that you parents and grandparents need to be teaching your little grandchildren because the more you front load their thinking with biblical concepts when they're three, four, or five, the better it's going to protect them when they're 15, 16, and 17. If you wait till they're 15, 16, and 17, it's too late. They've already sucked up the world's thinking on what love is. So... That led to the next point, what is divine love? We have to understand this, where I ended last time, that the pattern, the paradigm, the picture for divine love in Scripture is the cross. That The more I teach, the more I go through the Scripture, the more I understand how important it is that we need to think about the cross. We need to think about the, all the dimensions of soteriology. Because this helps us to understand the love of God and how his love is manifest to us. We looked at these passages last time, John 3.16, for God loved the world literally in this way. It's the Greek word hutos, which doesn't mean loved it so much. It means God loved the world in this way. And then he tells us how God loved us. He sent his only begotten son. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is echoed by Paul in Romans 5.8 that God demonstrates his own love toward us 
in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's a love that is not focused on who we are or what we've done. When we say, I love you, so often what we're saying is we're looking at a person and we're saying there's something about you that makes me feel better. Often I joke that if I were accurate in my um, uh, wedding ceremonies, I would have the bride and groom look at one another and say, you make me feel so wonderful and so happy that I'm going to give you the opportunity to make me feel like that for the rest of my life. And we all understand how selfish that is and how self-centered that is. That's just the opposite of love. But that is so often what characterizes relationships today. And what we see in the Scripture is God's love, the pattern for what our love should be, isn't dependent or conditioned on the character, the qualities, the behavior, the actions of the person that's loved. It's based on God's character, not our character. And that means that we have to understand more about God's character, and that's where his righteousness and his justice comes to play. Because his righteousness and justice gives us that understanding that this love is a love that is predicated on character, it's predicated on integrity, it's not predicated on uh, the ephemeral and mutating attributes of the object of love. So that leads to the second point. God's love for us is not based on our actions, our character, our successes, our failures, our morality, our lack of morality, or any other human factor, including what political party we're affiliated with. I just thought I'd throw that in to wake people up and get a chuckle. Okay, it's without conditions on our part. That's what real love is. So if if we're going to love God... It has. It comes as a response. We, scripture says we love him because he first loved us. He initiates, as I pointed out last time, he initiates, we respond. But as we respond to his love, it's because we understand his love and the integrity of his love, and only that gives us the real ability to love one another. And that's not just in the relationships that we have as uh, in romantic relationships of a man and a woman or in family relations of parents to children and children to parents, but also relationships outside the home, relationships to those who are classified in Scripture as our neighbor. We'll look at that in in the next couple of weeks. But it's, as Jesus says, it involves uh, one another. And that's in those passages, it's primarily focusing on others in the body of Christ. But the constant repetition in the Scripture of Leviticus 19.18 also emphasizes the love is to those who are not believers, those who aren't in the family of God. So to begin with, we have to understand that our love reflects God's love, and God's love is based exclusively on his character and has nothing to do with our character. So ultimately, if you want to be a better lover, when you say to your spouse or to your children or to your friends that you love them, that consciously in our minds has to be predicated on that I love them not because of who you are. I can't even say I love you because of who I am. I love you because of who God is. And my love has to, for other people has to be built on my understanding of the integrity of God. Third point, God's love for us was such that he devised a solution for our greatest problem. And our greatest problem isn't your bank account. Our greatest problem isn't 
the Democrat Party or the Republican Party. Our greatest problem is sin. Everything else flows from what happened when Adam disobeyed God in the garden and plunged the entire human race into corruption and rebellion against God. But God has the only solution to that, and the consequence is that if God solved the greatest problem we'll ever face, then God can solve all these other problems. But the only way we can solve all those other problems is if we start with the divine solution and not the human solution. Because the human solution is a result of the work of the flesh. And the work of the flesh leads to hatred and anger and resentment and divisions and fragmentation along with numerous other, other things. So we have to really understand that the starting point has to be a biblical solution. And as I've observed different people talking about all kinds of different things that have been going on in our culture in the last few years, and you hear a number of, of theologians, you hear a number of pastors come out with their solutions, you can break them all down. There's one group of pastors who understand the divine solution of grace and a Bible-based solution, and there's a lot of others who are just looking for any sort of other solution. Now, now we live in a real world. We live in a world that is dominated by a lot of unbelievers, and sometimes in political solutions you have to reach pragmatic solutions. There are certain solutions that we that we have to deal with on a practical level, but we as Christians understand that's not the ultimate solution, that that solution only will work if it is somehow part of an ultimate framework that focuses on the divine solution. And that's not always easy to discern, but that's what we have to learn to think through. A fourth point is that God's love for us involves his whole essence. It is perfectly compatible with all the other attributes, specifically with his righteousness. If we're going to ever talk about social justice and social righteousness, and I, and I despise those terms because they are freighted, they, they come with a lot of baggage. And the baggage that they're carrying is Marxism and Leninism and, and, and progressivism. And these are all antithetical to anything that's taught in the Word of God. But the Bible does talk about justice, and it does talk about righteousness. And righteousness is his standard, the standard that God has. And it's based upon his character, not some external abstract characteristic of righteousness that God subscribes to and we should also. It's his character, so we have to really know God and really study his works in history to understand what righteousness actually is. So the solution has to be consistent with his righteousness and justice as well. Justice is the application of his righteousness. The righteousness is his standard. Justice relates to the application of that standard. And in both Hebrew and Greek, the words that are translated righteousness and justice are the same words. Okay, because they're two sides of the same coin. One side is the standard of God's character. The other side is the application of that standard to his creatures. So righteousness and justice go together, and neither of them are juxtaposed to his love. But both function with another characteristic, his omniscience, 
he has a solution that is based on his complete and thorough knowledge of every dimension of every problem. So God understands all the, whatever the social problem is, whether it's the social problems of the Egyptians in the ancient world or the Romans in the ancient world, or whether it's the social problems of, of, of Russia or the social problems in Islam or the social problems in America, God knows that the, it's the same solution for every one of them. In his omniscience, his omnip, excuse me, his omnipotence, he was able to solve all of the problem. That there's no sin that's too great for the love, the grace, and the power of God. This is one of the problems you have in Eastern Orthodox Christianity, is that they have failed to understand eternal security. And if there's no eternal security, then you don't have a God who can really solve your problems. And that gets into a really deep, profound conversation, but it always works itself out in practical realities. This is why you've never had anything approaching the stability of the West in Eastern Christianity. It's because they have a a false view of God and his power and his ability to solve problems. It's better in the West, and, and in its highest form, in the 19th century under English language-based theology, you had a great, the greatest sort of the high watermark of Christian influence in history and culture. That doesn't mean they were perfect. We're never going to have perfection in this world. That's the lie that's offered by Marxism and progressivism. It's a utopianism that is completely contrary to the word of God. So you're never going to get there. In fact, it, that was understood by our founding fathers. Our founding fathers did not set forth in in the Constitution that they were going to form a perfect union. It's a work in progress. They said they were going to form a more perfect union. More is a relative term. It's a work in progress. But it's a work in progress that must be predicated on divine viewpoint, and their thinking was for the most part. So God's love is compatible with these other aspects of his character, and they all work together and they all intersect together. The fifth point is that God's love is also described in terms of faithfulness and loyalty. The Hebrew word is the word chesed. It's the word that is, you may have heard the word chasid for our Hasidic Jews or chasidim. It's the same word. Uh, the original original Hasidic Jews, not related to the ones we know of today, were a, a, a sect that probably gave birth to the Pharisees after the return from, from Babylon, that they wanted to go back to being faithful and loyal to God. So they took this word that is primarily used in the Old Testament as a characteristic of God and his faithful loyalty to his people based on based on his covenant. So when God says to Israel, I love you, is that a romantic love? No. Is that an emotional love? No. Is it a contractual love? Doesn't that sound romantic? But that's what it is. It's a contractual love. That's the same thing that you did with your wife when you stood up in front of a pastor or a uh, a member of the uh, legal profession or a judge or someone. You swore on a contractual basis that you were going to love your your spouse, whether things were good or bad, whether you were healthy or sick, whether you were in prosperity or adversity, whatever the conditions were, and then you signed a legal document. 
You made a contract, a covenant. So this this is what love is. It's based on loyalty to to a covenant. This is what chesed is, and it's translated that way in passages such as Deuteronomy 7, 9. Therefore know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy. There's the word, not keeps covenant, but mercy. That's often translated mercy or loving kindness, and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. Notice the connection. Love is measured by keeping his commandments. So the sixth point, God's love is sufficient to solve the greatest problem we'll ever face, and therefore it solves whatever sin problems we face. We all live in the devil's world, which means it's a corrupt, unjust place. Every one of us faces injustices. Every one of us faces inequities. Every one of us faces hostility from other people for whatever whatever reason. But it is God's solution that enables us to surmount whatever those individual problems may be by res- and being able to respond in biblical love to those who are in opposition. And when we're operating on a human viewpoint solution, it's not biblical love, and it will always manifest as some kind of divisiveness and hostility. Now, the seventh point takes us back to understanding our response to God. We love him because he first loved us, First John 4 says. Um, personal love for God is our response to God's initiating love. And then in, that was point seven, flying by that fairly quickly, but point number eight, love for God, therefore, is based on knowledge, and knowledge of God, who he is and what he's done for us. We learn to love God by learning who he is and what he's done for us. It doesn't happen overnight. As children, think about your relationship with your parents. You had a a, a child's love for your parents. But as you came to know your parents and you came, and you lived with them and you grew up and you grew up past childhood to adolescence, that love matured, but it was based on knowledge until you became an adult. And so the same thing is true in the spiritual life. The love that we have when we're brand new Christians is different from the love that we have when we're a mature believer because we grow in the knowledge of who God is and what he's done for us. 1 John 4, 8 says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now, if you're operating on the sin nature, then you're not going to, the Holy Spirit's not going to be producing love in your life. And so if you don't love, then the opposite is you don't know God. There's no, there's no spiritual growth. Not knowing God doesn't mean you're not saved. In John's language, not knowing God means you're ignorant about who God is. You've never grown. You've never learned the word. You've never come to understand who God is. So love for God is based on knowledge. We have to know the word of God. That's our priority. We have to read it. For the last year, we've had a lot of people reading through their Bible, and that's great. Now some people are starting a second time. They've read it through all the way. They're starting a second time. Now probe a little more deeply. Think about questions like, what does this tell me about God? What am I coming to learn about God and how God relates to his creatures and what God provides for those both who are obedient to him and those who are disobedient to him? What are we learning about about God? That is going to develop our love for him. The ninth point is that love for God is, first of all, based on knowledge, not emotion. 
It's not to be confused with sentiment or even gratitude. I've seen this happen sometimes with couples. Uh, for whatever reason, the initial attraction is that one has provided something for the other one, and the response is gratitude, and they confuse that with love. And then they get married, and then they have problems. Love is not gratitude. Gratitude may be a component of love, but it, it don't confuse the two. And love isn't a sentiment. It's not how you feel. It may produce some sentiment, but don't confuse the two. They're different. Love is not a romantic, but it may involve that, but don't confuse the two. So how do we know if we're loving God? 1 John 5, 2 says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Well, I'm going to love other people. Well, wait a minute. Not if you're not loving God and his commandments. You, the Bible doesn't allow us to separate love for others from love for God. So that's part of the metric is how do we love God? We see it in how we love others. Deuteronomy 5.10 says, uh, God shows mercies to thousands. He says, but the, to those who love me and keep my commandments. There's always this connection in Scripture that loving God is measured by obedience to God. It's not measured by how you feel. It's not measured by how you sway when you sing Christian choruses. It's measured by your knowledge of Scripture and your application of Scripture. Jesus says this in John 14 several times. As we read that this morning, you should have counted four, four positive ways, one negative way in which Jesus stated this principle in those verses. In John 14:15, he says, If you love me, keep my commandments. That's the metric. If you love me, keep my commandments. That implies that you have to know his commandments. You have to know the word. So we have to know the word. We have to have the word embedded in our soul before we can understand how to obey him. And obeying him is how we reflect that love that we have for him. John 14, 21 and 22, Jesus said, He who has my commands and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Implication, if you're not keeping them, if it's just abstract knowledge and there's no application in your life, then there's no real love for God. It's just talk. It's just emotion. John fourteen twenty one. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. This is an increase in fellowship, the deepening and strengthening a, a, a fellowship there. John fourteen twenty three. 23, uh, Jesus said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. That's fellowship again, that, that deepening relationship. It's related to loving God, keeping his word. And then the negative is expressed in verse 24, He who does not love me does not keep my words. So the one who doesn't love God doesn't keep his words, doesn't know his words, doesn't care about his words. First John 4, after reflecting on this for probably 40 or 50 years, John wrote, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, okay, I love God, that's the greatest commandment, and the second is like it to love your brother. If you say you love God and you hate your brother, he's a liar. He who does not love his brother, uh, <clears throat> for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? 
You can't disconnect those two commands. And this is what has happened in the social solutions that are predicated in this country that grow out of all of the human viewpoint worldviews, whether it's progressivism, Marxism, socialism, um, whatever it is, liberal Protestant Christianity, is they've separated and made the priority out of loving one another without grounding it in the ultimate solution, which is loving God first. And when you do that, it's no longer a work of the spirit, it's a work of the flesh. And the end result is the destruction of an individual and his spiritual life, or the destruction of a family, or the destruction of a company, or the destruction of a nation. Any society fragments when the foundation is on human viewpoint. First John 5.2, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to think about uh, some fairly profound ways in which what Jesus has said impacts uh, the culture around us, the circumstances we find ourselves in in this nation, and maybe even in our own personal life and in our own families. The solution, the divine solution, always has to start with you, and the solution has to start with the cross. But it doesn't end there. We have to grow, we have to know, we have to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we have to obey the Scriptures. And only as we walk by the Spirit, and the Spirit produces this character transformation in us, can we see the the, the the end result that we really wish. But if we try to do it on our own, divorced from your grace and who you are, then the consequence is just what we see around us. It's, it's self-destructive. And, Father, we have to be reminded again and again that the only solution is your solution. The only solution is the, the grace solution and the divine solution. Father, we pray that if there's anyone listening today that, that has never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, that they would recognize that that's the starting point of the solution. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He paid the penalty for sin so that by trusting in him and him alone, we could have eternal life. It's simple. It's based upon Jesus doing everything, and we do nothing. But it secures eternity, transforms us, from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive, and we are justified and redeemed with a salvation that can never be lost. Father, we pray that you would help us to implement what we have learned today, that we would think about it, that we would reflect upon what your word says, and that it would have a transformative effect through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.